turn to Hebrews chapter 4. I want to read for us uh, verses 12 through verse 13. 12 and 13, Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Our author is here writing about the word of God, and that immediately raises a question that we must consider. What is the relationship between the Bible and the word of God? Different answers have been put forward to that very important question. But as we grapple with them, it's important to consider what the Bible says about itself. Among some liberal Christians, it's often suggested that the words of the Bible and the words of God are two different things. But that doesn't injustice to the Bible writer's own claims, not least those of the author of this letter. In quoting the Bible, which he does more than 30 times, The author of Hebrews continually represents the words of Scripture as God's own word. For our author, one could no more separate God's words from Bible words than one could separate speed from motion or water from wetness. Among conservative Christians, the relationship between the Bible and the word of God is sometimes viewed as a one-to-one correspondence. The Bible is God's word, and God's word is the Bible. And that's that. I once heard a good man, a Bible teacher of another generation, claim that God has said all he has to say, and he said it in the Bible. But in trying to exalt the Bible, this idea does an injustice to the Bible. The Bible reports that God speaks to people through other means than the Bible itself. Our teacher takes that for granted when he repeats the phrase over and over again. Today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, he understood that God speaks to us today so that we can hear his voice and not just read what he said. Now, how do we put that together? I think this way. God is still speaking, but he will never contradict what he's already said. The Bible is God's word written down for us, and as such is a treasure of unmeasured value. But that same Bible teaches us that God may speak to us today. However, if you think you hear God saying something that contradicts what God has already said in the Bible, you've misheard. I've known people who've done that. That also means that we ought to come to the Bible, as Tozer suggests, not as to a book that was spoken, but to one that is speaking. God can't be shut up in a Bible. But it's unlikely that a Christian who never opens the Bible will hear him anywhere else. 
If you're going around saying, I don't know, wait for God to speak to me somewhere sometime, and you're ignoring your Bible, you're going to wait a long time. Our author is thinking about God's word and ours. In writing about God's word, he points out three characteristics it possesses and two actions that it performs. We'll think first of those three characteristics. The first characteristic of God's word is that it is living. This is the same word our author uses to describe God in the last chapter. The words we speak are are mere symbols. They sometimes accurately and sometimes not so accurately reflect reality, but they don't create reality. But the living God speaks living words. His word is creative. It brings reality into being. He calls things that are not as though they were, St. Paul says, and they are. Because God's word is living, the Bible is a living book. I like Martin Luther's colorful way of describing the Bible. He said, the Bible's alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. You had that experience? The former Pro Bowl quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, some of you will remember him, Steve Bartkowski, would have understood that. He said, for years, the Bible was a dead book to me, like grits without salt, until he played for Atlanta. Grits without salt. But after I gave my life to Jesus Christ, it became alive. I saw that the Bible was God's way of talking to me. Now, I know what Bartkowski meant when he said that the Bible was dead to him, but I think it would be more accurate to say that until he gave his life to Jesus Christ, he was dead to the Bible. When he gave his life to Christ, he became alive to the Bible. The second thing our author says about God's word is that it is active. When we speak... There's no guarantee that anything's going to happen. Ask any parent of a three-year-old. But God, when he speaks, things get done. His word accomplishes what he sends it to do. It is self-fulfilling. My word, God says, will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I've sent it. The Bible writers ascribe a great deal of activity to God's word. It made the heavens. That's Psalm 33. It washes like soap and water. That's Ephesians chapter 5. It conceives spiritual life in people. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. It sustains everything in all creation. That's Hebrews chapter 1. The word that the NIV translates as active here is the Greek word energes. We get our word energy from it. God's word is energetic. It's active. It's on the move. You cannot lock it away in a church or in a Sunday school classroom. It gets into everything from beer halls to the halls of Congress. Don't think when you close the covers of your Bible that you shut up the word of God. It can't be stopped. It's active. Our author uses a third adjective to describe the word of God. It is sharp. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Joe Stoll, who's president over at Cornerstone University, put it this way. The word of God has a supernatural edge with which a million-dollar budget can never compete. Nothing can take the place of the word of God. The word here translated double-edged is idiomatic, and it literally means two-mouthed. The word of God, here's the idea, 
has a bite. And it bites deep. It can hurt. Oswald Chambers says, if you're religious, I love Oswald Chambers. He, he cuts right to the heart of things. If you're religious, it's easier to read some pious book than the Bible. The Bible treats you like human life does, roughly. That's because God's word has a bite. The actor, Sir Ian McKellen, who played Gandalf in the, the Lord of the Ring movies, says that whenever he stays at a hotel, he always checks to see if they have a Gideon Bible. If they do, he says, I tear out a page. I turn to Leviticus 18.22 and rip out that page. It's directed against homosexuals. I think by now I must have ripped out a few hundred. Sir Ian's gay. I suspect that at some point in his life, God spoke to him on the subject, perhaps through that passage in Leviticus, and he didn't like it. It had a bite. I've been bitten too, more times now than I can remember. The word of God has sharp teeth. Our author follows these three characteristics, living, active, sharp, with two actions. It penetrates and it judges. When he says that the word of God penetrates, it's a word that's used only here in the New Testament, he means that it cuts through the noise of the world, all the layers of self-protection that we've bundled ourselves in, and it reaches right to our hearts. Many of us in this service, it'll be different in the second service, but many of us remember where we were when we first heard that President Kennedy had been shot. I was in a classroom in, our, uh, in Oakwood Elementary School, and they announced that the president had been shot over the intercom to us kids. The British novelist David Lodge was in the theater, and he was watching the performance of a satirical review that he had helped write. In the introduction to one of his books, he tells the story. He says that one of the characters on stage was supposed to be going through an interview and to display an attitude of indifference, he was supposed to turn on a radio, a transistor radio, and hold it up to his ear during the interview. And every night he would tune into a real radio station while he was doing this to make it more lifelike. But on that particular day, he tuned in just in time to catch the broadcast, the announcement that President Kennedy had been shot. He quickly turned off the radio, but it was too late. The audience had been lost. Uh, the, the illusion had been penetrated by reality. God's word is like that. It breaks in. It penetrates our lives and our busyness. It cuts through the veil of illusion. That's why at Lockwood we avoid the emotional pleas and the sensational displays and we spend so much time in the scriptures. I know that if God speaks his word to us, our lives change. And if he doesn't, the best we can hope for is to entertain. Our text says that God's word penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Some teachers have found in these words support for the doctrine that man exists in three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Well, support maybe, but whether or not that doctrine is true, that's not our author's point. He's not trying to say something about the tripartite nature of man. He's saying that God's word goes right to the heart, exposes the deepest, most hidden part of a man or woman. And that brings us to the second attribute of God's word, 
Second action attributed to his word, it judges. It judges the thoughts and attitudes or the King James Version's intents of the heart. The word that is translated judges here is only used here in the New Testament. It has the idea of sifting through and analyzing evidence. In this case, our own thoughts and attitudes. The heart's thoughts and attitudes aren't things that we usually talk about. The people who know us rarely see them. In fact, we're often unaware of them ourselves. But they are the engine that drives our lives. The thoughts and attitudes of the heart eventually develop into the words and actions that represent us to the world. People often claim that their motives, their intentions, their thoughts and attitudes of their hearts were really better than their actions turned out. Sometimes I think that's true, but more often our actions are a whitewash over thoughts and attitudes that we never intend anyone to see. But God's word uncovers these things that no one else sees. He sees. He knows us. Even we don't know ourselves. I've been reading in Matthew lately in my own devotional times, And I've noticed an interesting construction that's repeated in the Greek text. One example, Jesus warned his disciples not to do religious things before men to be seen by them. That's how the NIV translates it, to be seen by them. The Greek preposition that underlies that translation is not the usual one that denotes purpose. It's more subtle than that. It's the simple word pros, toward. It's not that people think it out and say, well, I'm going to give money so that people will see me and applaud me. But there's a half-thought, an attitude, an unacknowledged intention toward that goal. The same construction used when Jesus said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. He's talking about the person whose motive in looking, usually unacknowledged, is to lust. Same preposition, he moves towards it, without admitting that intention, even to himself. But God sees. He sees everything. Recently, the, the former Illinois governor, Rob Blagojevich, was sentenced to 14 years. Did you hear that on the news a couple weeks ago? <clears throat> 14 years in prison for trying to sell a U.S. Senate seat. What was striking in the whole thing was the man's carelessness about it. Federal agents had practically broadcast to him their intention to investigate him. And still he went about his criminal activity as if there wasn't a chance in the world that he was being observed. He made phone calls as though he'd forgotten the possibility that he might be recorded. But we know that everything we say and do, even the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, are under observation. And yet sometimes we exercise the same careless disregard as Blagojevich. And since we have good reason to believe that many of those thoughts and attitudes of our hearts are self-gratifying, self-glorifying, self-centered, we might be tempted to despair. Blagojevich foolishly hoped to conceal his thoughts. We know we don't have any such hope. 
There's not a chance in the world that we can hide them. Look at verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. A more literal rendering of that verse would go like this. Not a creature is unrevealed before God. All are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Naked, exposed. The rare word the NIV translates as laid bare is a difficult one. It's from the Greek word for neck. And scholars have found two possible meanings. It may refer to the wrestler's hold when he catches an opponent under the chin and bends back his neck. Or it may refer to pulling back a sacrificial victim's head, think of a lamb, in order to slit its throat. Either way, the idea here is of being completely vulnerable and exposed. There's no hiding from God. Now that's more than a little disconcerting. Because the scripture repeatedly teaches, it's one of the great themes of the Bible from the first book to the last, that God will judge us. He is, as Abraham called him, the judge of all the earth. He is a righteous judge, the psalmist says. The scriptures repeatedly state that he shows no partiality. He will call the past, says the wise man, Solomon, into account. He will reward everyone according to what he has done. That's Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Corinthians. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. That is repeated so often in the scriptures, in Exodus, in Nahum, in Numbers, and many other places. You and I have to give an account to this judge from whom nothing, not our most secret thoughts, not even the half-formed intentions we keep hidden from ourselves, is hidden. There will be a reckoning. (coughs) I said earlier that our author is writing about God's word and ours. We've seen what he has to say about God's word, the three characteristics, the two actions. But where in these verses does he say anything about our word? It doesn't show up in our English translations, but where verse 12 begins with God's living word, his lagos in Greek, verse 13 ends with our word, lagos again. There is God's word and ours. God's word initiates, ours responds. God's word sifts and searches, ours confesses. His is a judging word, ours an accounting word. So the NIV translates, to whom we must give Account. The Greek is toward whom our word. Our word comes back to him. There will be a reckoning. When God judges us, there will be no doubt about the rightness of his judgment. It will be our own voice that testifies. His word goes deep into our heart and draws our word, the true voice that's been speaking in the depths of our hearts all these years, out. We will recognize it at once. We will know at last this is our true self, uncovered and laid bare. Now, if that's so, 
What hope is there for any of us? For we're all sinners, everyone. All possess a heart of darkness wherein is recorded in our own voice the thoughts and attitudes that we assumed no one would ever see or hear. So what hope do we have before the God who calls the past into account, the one who will in no wise leave the guilty unpunished? The answer to that is none at all. If we don't have Christ. That's been our author's theme all along. Jesus Christ who died for us. Jesus Christ who made atonement for us. Jesus Christ who became one of us. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus Christ, the author of our salvation, who provided purification for sins. He is our hope to be united to the one who took our sins in his own body on the cross is our one and only hope. That's the message of the scriptures. The one who made you knows you inside and out. He knows you better than your mother does, better than your spouse does, better than your best friend does, better than you do. He not only knows all the bad things you've done, he knows the even worse things you've thought and felt. He even knows the things you will do. Nothing, nothing is hidden from his sight. And knowing you that well, knowing how you would fail and lose faith and retreat into self-centeredness and even betray him, knowing everything about you, he still loves you with all his heart. He loves you like no one ever loved you, not your mother, not your spouse, not your best friend. He knew all those things about you before you were born, before the world was made. And even knowing you so, he loved you and died for you. So what hope do we have? The only hope that anyone has and all the hope anyone could ever need. That hope is in Jesus Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest. So what do we do about the fact that we will stand before God the judge? Sometimes I'm amazed how often that idea appears in the scripture and how seldom it appears in even church culture. What do we do about it? Well, if you've not done so already, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Give yourself fully and completely to him, and he will give himself gloriously to you, the just for the unjust, so that he can lead you to God. If you've already been joined to Christ by faith, you're trusting in him today. Make sure you learn to hear God's voice. That is possible. Don't wait for the day of judgment to experience the judging work of God's word. The wise want, they really want, they long to have his word work in their hearts today. Sifting them, throwing light on every thought intent, bringing them to confession, washing them clean. The wise love God's word. The best way I know to experience this regularly, and now we're going back to where we started, is to spend time in the Bible. Come to it as a book that is still speaking. 
Follow Soren Kierkegaard's advice, and when you read God's word, constantly be saying to yourself, it's talking to me and about me. By doing so over and over, you will come first to recognize, then to appreciate, and finally to love the word of God. Let's pray now. God, show us what you want us to do with this. Your word, we praise your word that never returns to you empty, but always accomplishes your purpose. Your word that gives life to the dead, that brought the heavens and the earth into being. Speak your word to us. And accomplish what you will in our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen. As we stand together, preparing to sing, we have to ask ourselves always, we long for the coming of Christ. Do we long for his presence in our lives? And are we listening for him and are we walking with him when he comes to us? And uh, just to echo what Shane said, one of the best ways to hear Jesus Christ is to open your Bible and listen. And uh, let's, let's sing today.